Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by yet another special guest. Keza, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, I'm Keza. I'm Keza McDonald. Uh, I do video games for, for, for money. I'm, uh, I'm the video games editor at The Guardian right now and I've been a video games journalist since I was 16 professionally. So a very, very, I won't give away how old I am, but that's quite a long time now, unfortunately. <laughs> that's impressive going. Our last guest was Andy Kelly, who started when he was mm. 17. So you've gone one up on him. That's, that's good. Now we just have to find a 15-year-old games <laughs> guest. To be fair, yeah. it was two weeks before my 17th birthday that I got my first job in games. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. In fact, like when I joined the industry at 18, um, everyone said to me, well, Samuel, you're not that young because person, a person who was here shortly before you um, was even younger. And it's like, okay, wow. So um, how young do they get here? Are they like urchins in the editorial <laughs> minds, like writing preview <laughs> content from the age of 11? Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, they're all YouTubing now. It's all the eight-year-old YouTubers. They've definitely got us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've got us beat. The eight-year-old billionaires. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I've I've missed several boats in my career. In that I started out on print just as print was dying, and then I moved into websites just as YouTube was taking off. And now I work for a newspaper. So overall, really <laughs> keeping on the pulse of the media. <laughs> oh, I bet yeah. your folks are impressed though. Yeah, to be honest, my parents finally understand my job after 15 years now that I work for The Guardian, so that's something. (laughs) They tell people, they're very proud, it's very sweet. I had a whole bunch of questions I um, want to ask about your career, but you seem to have covered it all in two sentences, Keza, so it's... um, Well, I have to work to really strict word count, so it's just habit at this point to be concise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So this episode is all about E3, so we're joined by... Keza because uh, Keza has been to E3 a whole bunch of times so the Electronic Entertainment Expo it's um, largely been considered the biggest event on the gaming calendar at least traditionally and uh, so yeah it's, it'll be great to talk about it a little bit as the um, digital version of the event is coming up for 2021 it's seemingly got the backing of major publishers and um, yeah basically I thought it'd be fun to talk a bit about our E3 memories on this podcast we try and go deep into you know sort of industry stuff or games journalism career stuff that people might find interesting but um i suppose then Kessa, before i ask a little bit about you what's your sort of overall read on e3 do you miss it this year are you sad you're not going i love e3 very selfishly just because it's a really exciting thing to do as a journalist like you're running around actually seeing things actually talking to people like a lot of the time games journalism can be quite a it's quite a couch-based <laughs> activity it's quite a couch-based um version of journalism you know you're not really looking you know on, on the ground very often and i love that mm. i love the energy of the place i know it's you know you're, you're basically just running from game demo to game demo with very very hungover californians but you know it's still more exciting than um it can be when you're just sitting at your desk a lot of the time um and i really enjoy the buzz and i like that you get so much fun news all at once you know it's just it feels people call it e3 video game christmas and that is how i feel about it i really love it even the years where i've not actually been and i've been covering it um pregnant on my couch i've really enjoyed e3 staying up at three in the morning and watching shenmue 3 get announced was just really really <laughs> fun I'm, i am gonna miss it this year i've not been for a while now due to a combination of pandemics and small children entering my life um and i was really really hoping it was going to be on this year and now i'm worried it's never going to come back which would be gutting i've got a good feeling about it coming back um i've got we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk Mm. more specifically about e3 uh related kind of gubbins but i feel like the backing from the publishers this year suggests that people are still into it um 
but yeah i hope it comes back just for the you know the kind of like um like you say the spectacle of it it really does i think um you know games news christmas kind of sums it up it's just this big kind of sh- shot of um exciting industry energy i guess and yeah. lots of stuff going on at once and it is super um, corporate right obviously but that can be fun too you know it's a bit of a huge corporate dick waving exercise but that's sometimes really funny as i'm sure we'll get into when we start talking about our conference yeah for sure uh, matthew what's your kind of like uh, when i say three to you what's the what's your sort of reaction uh, I always think back to like reading Games Master when I was like twelve, and when you get to the E three issue, you know I didn't really know like I, I could actually don't think I could have told you what E three stood for, but you know I knew that there was a issue a year where something called E three happened, and it just made loads of games happen in a magazine. And I think for a lot of people who read magazines, like they were always the best issue of the year. That that one was like the the big exciting thing. And I think um, I think a lot of people who kind of grew up on that coverage have kind of carried a special place for it. And I, I guess that's still my relationship with it. You know, like when I went for my first year, it was like, oh shit! Like I'm at the thing. I'm I'm at the thing from Games Master. Like I remember reading that issue like in a holiday camp. You know, in a sitting in a tent and just looking at pictures of um, weirdly <laughs> the video game tie-in of like Dragonheart and going, wow, <laughs> <laughs> this is the stuff. <laughs> I remember reading uh, N64 magazine's issue about Space World. Oh yeah, that was a long. It's long dead now, but that was a thing that Nintendo used to do just previous to. Uh to Tokyo Game Show. And I remember sitting poring over these tiny photographs of this Japanese Nintendo Fest and thinking this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. I think that was the yeah. first the first time I remember reading about um one of the big games industry events and being excited about it. And the E3 issues were always just they were exciting when because I was trying to explain this to my 15-year-old stepson the other night because that was the only way we had to know about games. We had to go and buy a magazine and look at little pictures of, of the video games. We didn't get the live stream. You know, we didn't really even get... You know, there was no way to get the information you had. To, and everyone was always on a deadline battle, weren't they, to get their E3 issue out fastest. There was a, I remember an issue of N64. There were pictures of... Um, it must have been the E3 where Conker's Bad Fur Day was there. And Conker's Bad Fur Day was stand was just basically a bar giving all the journalists, like, pints of beer. And there's just all these sort of, like sort of middle-aged dudes drinking pints of beer in these photos and thinking like that just would never happen like it's such a different time but oh. um yeah it must have I, I, if i could go back in time i'd love to do one of those like earlier kind of rawer e3s mate late 90s e3 i bet that was a good time mm. i mean the games would have been shit and there would have been booth babes everywhere and it would have been incredibly sexist and i'd probably have been dragged to one of those awful strip clubs on the sunset strip but nonetheless it probably would have been a good time for the games anyway (laughs) well um as you're kind of speaking from experience there then keza let's um jump a bit into your background so what was it like for you getting started in games media and working in print from such a young age it was my dream job and i had i grew up on games magazines nintendo ones particularly and uh when i was 16 i did some work experience at games tm which at the time was still quite new I think I joined when it was about a year old and that was at the time supposed to be a kind of edgy competitor for um, to Edge, the kind of the, the most kind of academic and serious games magazine thought it was very important. And Games Team was like a slightly scrappier version of Edge. And 
Of course, I wanted to work for Edge, but I got Games Together because I was 16. <laughs> um, and I found it a very... At the time, at that age, I didn't really see it this way, but looking back now, it was very challenging because everyone was incredibly sceptical of me, firstly because I was so young, but then also because I was a girl. Um, and I was the only girl in the entire office. There was literally one other woman who wasn't who was working in editorial in the whole of uh, Paragon Publishing. Uh, everybody else was a kind of scruffy dude in their early 20s, and they were all very sceptical. And I had to do a lot of proving myself that I think, looking back, was probably quite unnecessary. But, you know, uh, that was the deal. <laughs> and um, I really enjoyed it, though. I enjoyed the work a lot more than I thought I would. It was very, very badly paid. <laughs> um, and a lot of fun. Um, but then, of course, because I was so young, I was too young to actually drink or go to any of the any of the events or to E3. My first E3, I was still 18. I was still too young to drink in America. Oh, wow. So, and I was staying, I remember staying, um, I stayed on a older American games journalist's hotel floor. That was my E3 experience the first time when I was 18 in a sleeping bag. But that's what I got. Um, oh my God. So it was all like incredibly scrappy for me in the, in the, in the early years. Because I, the, in order to, so I left school, I, high school dropout, I left school to go and to go and be a games journalist which is surely what every parent's dream is for their little girl uh, mm. and uh the one like condition that my parents gave me they were like look we'll support you obviously but please please come back and do university please please so i agreed to that so i spent this one year on games tm which i very much enjoyed and then from there i went back to uni and had a slightly more normal time but i kept um i kept freelancing i kept my foot in the door um, I did write for Edge eventually when I was in university. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so by the time I graduated uni, I already had like four or five years experience as a games journalist. So that was very fortunate because I graduated straight into the recession, like most millennials. Um, mm. And so where everybody else had kind of done a clever and sensible thing, like study to be a lawyer and there were just no jobs. I'd done the idiot thing and dropped out of school and gone to be a games journalist and thankfully had a bunch of experience and managed to get, to get you know, a job pretty quickly. Um, my first one was at IGN, where I was UK games editor. Um, so it was, I would say it was very fortunate that I did what I did and got in very young, even though it was very challenging being so young at that time and also the games mm. industry was very different back then like much much less diverse even than it is now and mm. quite a lot of stuff that i kind of put up with when i was a teenager i would not put up with now and i would not suggest mm. that you know young women now probably don't i mean they do like young women do now have to put up with the same stuff the same kind of gross creepy older men in whatever capacity whether they're developers or publishers they still exist they're being exposed everywhere every few months at this point but i do think things have gotten better for women and i think that now that there's more of us around in the games industry it's there's more people to look up to like there's more kind of like i had no one there was literally nobody else um the only other woman that i knew of in the whole of games journalism was the editor of edge margaret robertson who i never actually met um and then uh there was Ellie Gibson, who used to work at Eurogamer, who was awesome and is still a great friend of mine, but she really took me under her wing. And now the thing is, if you're a younger woman in the games industry, there are actually quite a lot of people like me around now. And so I mm. think it's it's I think it's better and easier now, I think, um, than it was when, when I joined. 
if you don't mind me asking, I guess, a bit more about that, Keza, do um, people kind of see you as a mentor now? Do you get uh, younger women coming into games talking to you about their experiences? Absolutely. And I love that. That's great. It's one of the things I enjoy about having stuck around. Like, I mean, you know what it's like in, in the games media. People tend to stick around for five years and then they either need to start earning some actual money or there's cuts at the publisher or whatever and they tend to move on to something else. They'll go into PR or they'll go into narrative. Everybody seems to be going into writing actual video games now. That's like the next step. Or they, you know, just leave the games industry entirely. So there aren't that many people who stick around in the games media for 10 years or i'm on 16 years now which is i mean can't do anything else now clearly mad so it is it's definitely good to be able to be around when people come looking for advice or the people are new in the industry i've had lots of people come up to me at events and stuff and say you know they read their my work when they were teenagers and they've now graduated university (laughs) which makes me feel four thousand years old But yeah, I think it's it's very important, especially for especially for um, especially for young women. I think it's important to have older mentor figures around the place that you can know that it's approachable. Also, very useful at parties. If there's a creep at the parties, you can come up and ask me to go and tell them to fuck off, and I will do that. That's useful. If you don't mind me asking, how many times has that happened? That I thought you were going to say, who are the creeps? <laughs> oh, maybe maybe not the place of this podcast. But um... if we if we name names on this podcast. Um, countless oh, guys. Wait, it's it the creep the special. It's no longer the E3 special. <laughs> it's the creep special. Yeah, I remember being um, taken out for a drink, aged seventeen, by someone who worked. He must have been about thirty-five, who worked um, as like a kind of publisher level guy at Paragon Publishing. He took me out for a drink and tried it on in my third week working there. You know, which was just very unacceptable at the time i was like oh well i guess that's the thing that's going to happen that i have to just deal with parties are always a thing like video game industry parties involve a lot of drinking and although that's fun it can also be not great for you know young women because it means that you get a lot of drunk dudes who can be really inappropriate that happens all the time like literally all the time the thing that's funny is that i remember uh um talking about this a few years ago and it was me and a couple of other women um, and two young men. And the, the men were just shocked. Like, they were like, oh, my God, I never see this. It's like, well, of course you don't see it. It doesn't happen to you. And you're nice, so you don't do it. So it's, like, literally invisible to you. Um, but this is one of the mm. things about kind of cultural, the, the cultural pervasiveness of sexism is it is kind of invisible to men a lot of the time. So um, it's it's something that you only see if it happens to you or if you're doing it. <laughs> so hopefully... Hopefully that's not the case for either of you. You both seem very nice. No, I, I, I can confirm that it's not my deal. Not creeps. Not creeps. I'm, I'm willing to put my seal of approval that you're not creeps. <laughs> well, I promise this isn't the only thing I brought you on here to talk about, Keza. Um, but I appreciate your honesty. Uh, so I would love to ask more about your experience in games journalism. But what was that period studying like? Because I just read a Wireframe magazine article, uh, with um, I think written by you, that talks about your experiences um, living in Japan. So Mm -hmm. what was that period of your life like? Oh, man, that was great. So when I went back to uni, I studied um, languages. So I did German and Japanese. Um, And I did Japanese purely and explicitly just so that I could go to Japan for my year abroad. Like, Japanese is incredibly hard. Don't study Japanese. It's really, really difficult. It's like the hardest language you can do, except for maybe Chinese or Finnish. But you do get to go to Japan for your year abroad. So when I was... 20 i flew to nagoya which is a city in the middle of tokyo and kyoto 
and uh, that's where I spent that year. I spent it um, studying. I really wasn't doing much studying, to be honest. I mostly spent it in <laughs> arcades or bars, <laughs> um, learning Japanese. Nice. Uh, and it was absolutely brilliant because I felt like it was very weird. It was almost like deja vu. I really felt like I'd been to Japan because I'd experienced Japan through video games for my whole life. Like all of the games I grew up with from Nintendo through to like weird ass PlayStation 2 games um, that I played when I was a teenager. Like most of the, and Bimani, I was super into rhythm action. Uh, all of the games that I loved were, were Japanese. And I remember walking around my my Aichi Prefecture suburb and it just looked so much like Shenmue. And I was like very weirded out by it almost because I felt like I'd been there before, but I hadn't. Um, and this was like 2008, right? So this is the tail end of the arcade era, but I still got mm. to experience like the real arcades. Um, most of my favorite ones are now shut, um, but they were still hanging on in there in 2008. And also it was the tail end of like Japan's dominance of the games industry. You know, there was that time when you know, Capcom, Square Enix, Nintendo, Sony, Sega, like it was just basically most of the games industry was dominated by Japanese Konami. And a lot of them are like, if not gone now, then they're shadows of their former selves, which is really sad. Um, but yeah, I feel mm. like I got I got to experience like just, just the end of like that version of Japan that I grew up with as the kind of home of mm. gaming, the center of the gaming world. And it was so cool. I loved it. And I also, um, I spent, oh, one of the coolest things about Japan, I don't know if this is still the case, but when you go to a game shop, instead of just all the, instead of it being this kind of horrible shell with FIFA in it, they have <laughs> video games from all eras. Like they have all the old stuff on the wall next to the new stuff. So you'll have NES games and SNES games and weird old cartridges that you've, you know, and, and lots of bizarre PlayStation One games. I found a whole bunch of Dreamcast stuff that never came out in the UK. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with with these games that never came out in the UK because they were like forbidden and exciting, and. You know, I remember pouring over N64 magazine and reading all the import reviews that Will Overton used to do. And uh, I bought all of, I bought all these stupid games, like the Derby racing game and a bass fishing simulator <laughs> <laughs> and um, Osumo 64 and all these just random ass, not very good N64 games, but they were exciting to me because I remembered them from the magazines and they were like a hundred yen in the bargain bucket. So I came back from nice. Japan with a, a Japanese N64 and about 50 just random games. I'm like, I just really enjoyed the, you know, gaming culture wasn't just, it wasn't just here's the latest products. It was like, here is the whole history of video games. Mm. And uh, it was like that in the arcades as well. Like the arcades, you'd have Street Fighter 2, like original Street Fighter 2 next to, you know, U-Beat or the next Guitar Freaks or whatever. And it was, it felt, it felt like gaming was kind of how I'd always seen it over there. Like part of life, part of culture, as opposed to just like shiny products. And I really loved that. It was great. Mm. Oh, and I also discovered Demon's Souls over there, which was probably the best thing I've ever done in my whole career. Oh, yeah. You were an early adopter. A pioneer, right? Yeah. It was... Um, I found it in a... I found it in a... It, the week it came out, I just saw From Software's logo on it. And I thought From Software were interesting because they'd done a bunch of random uh, PS2 era stuff that was just very offbeat, like Cookies and Cream, which was a strange platformer about rabbits, and uh, Kingsfield, which were... <laughs> miserableist survival fantasy games and and they did armored core which i like because i like big robots um and so i just literally saw from software's logo on it and thought mm, might give that a go and it turned out to be this <laughs> it turned out to be demon souls guys <laughs> it was yeah <laughs> it was so unexpected and i was trying to navigate that game in my fourth language 
as well. So I was sitting there with my little dictionary trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Obviously, it doesn't help. It doesn't help knowing what the words say in Demon Souls. That's not really <laughs> not really what you need to know. Um, but yeah, I think I was the first person to review that game in English. And uh, that started yeah. a bit of a... It was part of like the word of mouth snowball effect that got it released. Did you, um, did you play the remake on PS5? I did. I did. It was great. So you wouldn't want something with a special meaning to shit the bed. Exactly. It is, it is always a bit of a risk, isn't it, when they remake something that's really special to you? But uh, no, the PS5 mm. Demon Souls was just Demon Souls, but as it obviously was kind of in my imagination, like in my head. Um, mm. And the haptics on that were great as well. Like it was the first game I played on PS5 and having the swords clash against your shield and stuff, it, it made it even more kind of tense and exciting. I really, I really loved that game. And the problem was it came out at a time when I was so busy, I didn't get a chance to to actually write about it again. I didn't get a chance to review it. So I basically spent three months mm. playing it and then was like, well, probably too late to write about this game now. <laughs> I still enjoyed it. And now you're just waiting for the old uh, Sumo 64 remaster with the haptics. It's coming, man. It's coming. <laughs> well, I feel like um, just from the kind of idyllic way you've described your life in Japan there, I feel like they should make a Studio Ghibli film about you, Keza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the tall, blonde, handsome, um, white girl. Miyazaki didn't hate video games anyway. Um, <laughs> but... I was curious then, so from there, how do you kind of end up with um, IGN? What's that experience like? Um, I had a broadly very positive experience at IGN. Um, I, so I came back and I graduated and I was looking around for a job and IGN's UK Games Editor job came up. And um, it, was very, it, was, it was weird because IGN at the time was not, it wasn't very joined up internationally. Like it was very much the Americans did their thing and then there were just some Brits doing their other thing. Um, in London and so when I joined I made an effort to try and like make us more of a global team so I was trying to get us to Mm. sync up properly on news and to instead of doing UK reviews of stuff which was dumb just doing some of the reviews in the UK Um, and we were kind of really ramping up on video stuff at that time as well it was when uh, it was when YouTube was really taking off and uh, IGN was ahead of the game on video so that was my first time doing kind of broadcast style video stuff and uh i'll tell you what e3 with ign is one of the coolest things i've ever done it was like it was like a giant live news situation it was amazing like we had like a studio and you would you know you'd land at e3 and go to your terrible accommodation um but then on the days of the show you would be on a if you were presenting you'd be on like this really exciting really kind of energetic rotor where you had to i remember hosting one of the ubisoft conferences and uh you know you had to be like really on your game and responding in real time to what was going on you're in the studio with everyone else it was so flashy and fun um i really really enjoyed e3 with ign it was great because they're like the kings of e3 right when they're there um it's the biggest most american (laughs) games outlet that there is and you know uh, although that got you shit on the internet it certainly worked when you were at e3 because you got just this really fun production experience um and i got on pretty well mm. with all the all the people that i worked with in, in the states i got on really well like greg miller was at ign at that time and he and i were were pals like we got on great and uh you know i, I had i had a really good time um going to san francisco and and working at kind of such a kind of big flashy media company however um ign's also like extremely mainstream and you know it was basically a lot of the a lot of the women who were on IGN were like presenters right they were literally models so mm. the IGN audience did not know what to do with me <laughs> like at all they did not know how to respond <laughs> but i quite enjoyed that 
Um, I enjoyed kind of writing stuff about, you know, queer stories and video games or writing about, you know, or sneaking a bit of feminism into the reviews and stuff and just seeing them freak out. Mm. 14-year-old American boys from Minnesota being like, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> um, I always really enjoyed that, actually. It felt, it felt quite subversive. Um, but there there did come a point with IGM where I got a bit, uh, I got a bit fed up with the constant... Um, they didn't used to moderate the comments. Right. And uh, there came a point where, and it wasn't just me, it was everyone at IGN that struggled with this, but there came a point where I was like, I am so sick of being continually like abused professionally like all the time on the internet. It's just, this was pre-Gamergate. You know, after Gamergate, people started taking moderation more seriously and taking comments and stuff mm. more seriously. But at that time, I remember um, at one point, they on the, on the IGN Facebook, they used the cover photo and they were doing, like every week there'd be a different member of staff. And on mm. my week... The, the comments on this cover for, were, were disgusting. Like, they were really bad. And my mum saw them, because my mum's on Facebook. And my mum called me up and was, like, really upset. That's the point at which I ended up calling, like, the boss of IGN's, like, parent company and being like, I'm just going to send you some screenshots of some of the stuff that's appearing on our public Facebook page. If you'd like to do anything about this, that would be great. Um, like, that was the bad side of working for somewhere so big and so visible. Um, but from what I hear, mm. they're much better at uh, actually moderating their stuff now both on YouTube and on, on the site. I think there has been this realisation since... That, God, this is 10 years ago. There, there's been this realisation that it actually is important to moderate stuff on the internet. Mm. Which, you know, if you'd ever listened to any women or people of colour in the past, <laughs> the entire history of the internet, you would already know. But at least they're catching up now. Yeah. <laughs> I did think it was really cool, at least, that you emerged as like a central voice in IGN. Like, when I remember that period of IGN, I did feel like you were you were surfaced very well in terms of the stuff you were writing writing about. Did you feel like you, you had that kind of outlet and support to write about whatever you wanted? Totally. And I fought for it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I definitely put myself out there. I was like, I, hello, I'm here. <laughs> I want to do this. <laughs> um, and uh, generally, the you know response from within IGM was really good. Like, I, was, I had very supportive people working with me and people who actually wanted IGN to run stuff that was a little bit more challenging than, you know here's a list of Marvel movies that are coming out and so on. And, uh, you know, this is only a couple of years after they shut IGN babes. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, it was definitely a, uh, a period of change in, in the games industry. And in the games was that media. A thing? It totally was a thing in the nineties, all the way up to like the uh, IGN babes. IGN babes was absolutely a thing, man. It was, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was, uh, yeah, I remember very much in the in the early 2000s when I was first on the internet. Like, it would be IGN, it would be like, games, movies, comics, babes. <laughs> that was it. Um, but they, they kind of left the babes wow. content just kind of there for ages. And it was in about, I think it was only in about 2009 that they kind of went, okay, we should probably get rid of all this old babes stuff. It's really oh, embarrassing. Imagine having babes editor on your CV. <laughs> IGN babes editor, I love it. Uh, I wonder who that guy was. I think I'd rather not know. Yeah, babe in chief. <laughs> this was, you know, this was definitely a time when uh, there weren't that many prominent female voices around in games. And so that's one of the reasons I took the job at IGN, because I thought that's a huge platform and it would probably be really cool to be able to... I mean, there, there's a downside of... I mean, I've mentioned the downside of, of being so visible one of the nice things about my current job is that people who read newspapers really don't care enough to abuse me in the comments, which is nice. Whereas obviously when you're working for a website that's largely targeted at sort of teen boys and that has, you know, millions and millions of readers, um, it was certainly more challenging on that front. But like the plus side is that loads of people were really cool as well. And like I, um, 
I ended up doing some of IGN's biggest reviews. I did Grand Theft Auto 5. 4? 5? 5. Must have been 5. And I did Dark Souls um, for IGN, which was like... It was an exclusive, back when exclusive reviews were a thing. And I stayed up for like three weeks trying to play a broken pre-release version of Dark Souls. And then we did IGN's first ever live stream, which was 24 hours straight of me playing Dark Souls. <laughs> and uh, it nearly, I actually nearly died. It was awful. Um, but it was, it was also really, really fun. Um, and that was the first ever live stream that IGN ever did. Um, and I got to be a part of that, which was cool. Um, I did enjoy, I enjoy, I really enjoyed that job. Like it was, it was, uh, it was so different from working on a magazine. Like my previous experience was working on Games TM and Edge, right? And then um, mm. suddenly going and being part of such a kind of big company and such a mainstream one was, it was certainly new and exciting. I did enjoy it. Uh, so from there, you go on to be the um, launch editor and editor-in-chief of Kotaku UK, is that right? That's correct, yeah. I uh, So I left IGN um, basically because I, there was two options for me, really. I was either going to essentially become a children's TV presenter, which, let's be honest, is kind of what YouTube is. Or I could start looking for a just slightly different job that was a bit more journalism-y. So I kind of thought about what I wanted and I didn't really want to end up as an influencer, you know? Like, I got into the games media to write, essentially. You know, I'm a a born writer, I love it. And I also love love actual journalism. I love talking to people and finding stories. and, And there wasn't as much room for that on IGN, really as I wanted. So I ended up, um, it was when Kotaku were opening a UK franchise, they were kind of looking around for an editor. And I was like, that would be, that would be my ideal job. Like, cause Kotaku didn't give a shit. Like it was just, it was such a, a really ballsy blog, you know, and it was, it was, um, a quite variable in quality over the years, but like, it really had this core of like, just not giving a toss, which I really enjoyed. It was very anti-corporate. And like the opposite of IGN in terms of how it covered games. Um, and it also had at the time quite an, um, quite an unusual, quite an innovative approach to games journalism, where instead of doing preview, review, cycle, product-oriented journalism, they were very much looking at, you know, a game's story only starting when it comes out and looking for how people were playing and, and what communities were doing with, with games, which is common now, you know, that's kind of the playbook for Polygon mm. and, you know, most, I mean, PC Gamer as well, like most, I would say most online games journalism is now that that way but Kotaku was was there earlier and I found that very exciting and it was like I did kind of get sick of writing big game reviews you know like I spent three years at IGN stressing out over embargoes and you know playing games for like 18 hours of the day to to, to then write these kind of massive reviews and like I did enjoy it but after about three years of that I was like I kind of wanted to do something different um so yeah it was it was cool to be able to like launch Kotaku in the UK as well because I got to decide what it was and I got to decide what we covered and I got to not run any mm. of the kind of slightly dodgy anime stuff that I didn't particularly enjoy <laughs> on the UK site <laughs> so I got to kind of run my own version of Kotaku I got to kind of pick and choose what I liked about the American Kotaku and run all of that stuff and then I got to um, you know sort out our own reporting and our own kind of UK voice which I really like that was such a good job it was it was honestly brilliant I loved running Kotaku UK RIP Kotaku UK it lasted much longer than I mm. thought it would because it was rocky <laughs> um, <laughs> it was uh Kotaku was owned by Gawker Media which was a company that just was never out of controversy ever ever and there was just one crisis after another and in, in the um 
for Gawker Media in, in New York when I was working there, like culminating, of course, in uh, Hulk Hogan suing it out of existence with the financial backing of Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal. There is a documentary about this. You know, that's how exciting that was. Um, but yeah, it's uh, literally every year that I was running Kotaku UK, some kind of massive drama would be happening. I'd be thinking, this isn't going to last. This job is not going to last. So I was really pleased it lasted as long as it did, which I think was six years. It was rad then as well, seeing like your UK articles end up on the US Kotaku too. It seemed like um, they had a lot of respect for you over there. Yeah, it was, it was cool because um, the... Yeah, when I started at IGN, right, UK and US games journalism were quite siloed. And then by the time I was working for Kotaku, I'd sort of forced the Americans to pay attention to us at IGN. And then at Kotaku, they already knew who I was, which was useful. Um, And then that meant that, you know, the people I was running, the, the work that I was running from the UK, I was always trying to surface like really cool, good UK games journalism voices on Kotaku because that would then put it in front of the Americans, which would then put it in front of a bigger audience. And... I really like to think that like by the time I was done working for the the big American games websites they had a lot more knowledge and respect of like the talent that we have in the UK in the games media um because there's a lot of it and it's drastically underappreciated um and it was really cool being able to you know put UK voices in front of these really giant audiences and quite a lot of people who I worked with just loved it were just really excited whenever something went up on the US site um and it also mm. I think it also, you know, I think the, uh, I think we approach games journalism slightly differently in the UK. There's a lot more kind of dry humor. And I think that we come from this, like, this magazine tradition, right? Um, Whereas in the US, it's very personality focused a lot of the time. And I think that, I think that when the UK stuff started appearing on US IGN and US Kotaku, it really kind of helped to balance out that coverage and give it a different voice and i think it brought in a lot of readership as well which was good when i when i started in magazines i think i had an idea of certain american sites being these just slightly giant slightly um uh, not to be too rude but kind of like flame flavorless sort of behemoths mm. um but definitely like them becoming more international particularly folding in like some really great uk writers some really great australian writers as well actually yeah on um both on both like GameSpot and IGN, like they they feel kind of transformed to me as sites now. You know they they you know not to be condescending, but they feel like super legitimate um, in a way that I don't think they did maybe fifteen years ago. I totally agree with that. And uh, yeah, if you look at GameSpot's US team, you know they've they've imported you know Tamur and, and Lucy James from uh, from the UK two really really great mm. great voices and uh they they do have a habit of doing that though it's a bit annoying in that they kind of they they would sort of cherry pick from the uk and be like come to us and uh like i was i was uh i was um offered the offered a job in san francisco with ign that i didn't take because i can't bear san francisco um and i didn't really <laughs> want to be earning you know i didn't really want to be living in a studio apartment in san francisco you know that was not my dream mm. <laughs> Um, but if, the, if, if any US sites are listening, I am open to being imported, and I, you can literally import me in a crate. You don't even have to put <laughs> me in a chair on a plane. I will come. It doesn't need a studio apartment, just a crate. A crate and some water. Just a crate. I will live in the crate that you import me in. That is It'll my pledge to you. Just just put some food <laughs> through a hole in it occasionally, 
and you'll get some like mo- moderately decent copy out the other end. <laughs> uh, so Kessa, from there, how do you end up at the Guardian? That was a bit of a sideways, a bit of a curveball for me because um, so essentially I had a baby. That's what changed. I um I went and had uh my my son, my first son, my eldest, when I was yeah in twenty. 20- I can't believe I can't remember what year he was born. It's been quite a quite a quite a uh, a mind fuck of a year to be fair. He was born in 2016, at the end of 2016. Um so I spent 2017 just like at home with my baby and just playing games like I used to without having to think about what they were like for work. So I spent the whole of 2017 basically just playing Zelda Breath of the Wild forever oh. <laughs> just for I think I played for like 110 hours. I just, I didn't think about other games. I didn't have to care about what Destiny updates were happening. Um, I didn't have to be on top of what controversy was going on where. I didn't have to be pestering publishers to say things about, you know, about things they never wanted to talk about or delays or, you know, (laughs) in-game controversies or whatever. I wasn't kind of thinking about any of that. I was just enjoying video games again for on that kind of really basic pure level of just I want to play this and therefore I will and I don't have to think about an angle and that break from the games industry kind of changed my it changed what I wanted out of my career quite a lot because when I got back the first thing I did was write on Kotaku about how Destiny is unplayable if you are a parent you know it's like an unpausable constantly evolving fast paced you know and I, I was trying to play I was trying to play, I think it must have been Destiny 2 had come out by that point, but I was trying to play it and I just, it just wasn't, I was, it was not possible for me to play it. So I wrote a kind of quite tongue-in-cheek article about about this and I got like, because it was on Kotaku, it got in front of all the kind of Destiny streamers and I got like this kind of weird torrent of abuse from sort of like grown-ass 23-year-old Destiny streamers um, and their fans. And I just thought, oh, this sucks. Like... This this is I hate this aspect of the job, and um, I kind of felt like I didn't really, I didn't really want to be so involved in the kind of drama that you kind of thrive on if you're working for a site like you know a specialist game site you know because you have to care about you have to think about every game you have to care about every big game and you have to be looking you know you have to be on top of everything all the time and what I was kind of interested in was was games on a kind of bigger like a, a kind of more of a zoomed out level you know i was looking at you know where games were in culture in at large you know rather than just games in relation to other games i was thinking more about games in relation to life and tv and and, and movies and books and everything else that that we do with, with our lives and so when um when the guardian asked me if i was interested in writing about games for them i thought that would really work for me because the job of video games editor at a publication like The Guardian is essentially ambassador. You're kind of like an emissary from the nerd world. You're like, hi, I'm the person who knows about this thing and I'm picking out the most interesting or relevant or, yeah, the most interesting or relevant stuff from my world and I'm showing it to you. Like, that's kind of what my job is now. I'm sort of overseeing games and just picking the things that are in some way um, interesting, you know? And I don't have to cover every single game. I don't have to cover every single big game even. I don't have to run, you know, I'm not obligated to to run, you know, stuff on patches for The Division 2 if I don't want to, you know. Whereas on Kotaku or IGN, you know, you kind of had to cover every big game. You kind of had to, you had to be on top of everything. 
And now I don't have to be on top of everything. I just have to pick the stuff that seems most interesting or relevant. And I find that more, it's just a bit of a change, you know? And uh, also it's Mm. quite fun going from being, you know, frankly, a a big fish in a small pond in games world. You know, once you you get to a certain point in games world, you can't really get any further, can you? Like once you're the editor of a thing. Um, Mm. You can't really go anywhere with that. Um, And it was like, I, I love the games industry. I love the games media. And I really, you know enjoy working still with um with everybody who works in in the uk games media i've always found so many friends there and it's great but now i work for the guardian and there are real journalists doing doing stuff about gaza or doing like um (laughs) investigations into modern slavery or investigations into like you know prostitution in american prisons and i'm like hello i do the video games and it's a really good reality check (laughs) (laughs) the first day at the guardian um we have there's like morning conference which is really exciting it's when the editor-in-chief stands up and basically just kind of calls on everybody to talk about what they're doing and um just like in the films just like in the films it was so exciting i was beside myself um and you know the news desk were talking about brexit and then this was the time when all of that um stuff around the the kind of dodgy money coming out the panama papers stuff was was being reported on and that was all great really exciting and then they were like um, and I believe there's a new hire on culture and the culture editor stood up and said, um, yeah, we've got a new video games editor. And they kind of pointed at me and I kind of stood up and went, hello, <laughs> I write about video games. Um, <laughs> email me <laughs> if, if you have any questions about, about that. And then sat down again and everyone just went, all right. And then we moved on to, uh, I Weiwei. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely different and, and and quite fun. Um, and of course, it's I still like I, I battle a bit to get games kind of recognised. You know that there's still that kind of like pushback from especially older newspaper editor types. It's like, is this is this, what is this video games? You know, I hear they're worth money now. You know, and um, trying mm. to sort of push for video games being treated as part of the rest of culture and not come some kind of like weird cul-de-sac, some weird niche. Um, so I do have to do quite a lot of like, it's kind of like talking to your parents when you're 15 about video games around the dinner table. It's that, but now I'm 32 years old and I'm doing it with newspaper editors. Amazing. It's, um, it sounds like you're quite passionate about um, surfacing other writers' voices, Keza. Does having a platform like The Guardian allow you to do that, to give people sort of cred um, with that sort of platform in a way that you maybe you don't working in specialist games media? Uh, I mean, I would like to do more than I do. Cause, um, so I, uh, The Guardian... Um, it's a three day a week job, games editor. Everyone, you know, this is something I have to explain quite a lot. Like I work three days a week. It's quite a lot to fit into a three day week. Um, so I don't get as much time as I would like to really work on editing and talent surfacing. Like I did loads of that at Kotaku. I was always looking for new voices, um, interesting new voices to talk about games. And I spent a lot of time on editing and working with writers to kind of make their stuff shine and, you know, giving them a platform. I don't get to do as much of that as I'd like on The Guardian. Like, you kind of have to already be pretty at the top of your game to to be writing for The Guardian. So I would love to do more talent development. If I had more time, I'd be super into it. Um, but there is definitely a certain cachet that comes... You know, you can you can work with somebody who's been a games journalist for like 10 years and they get a review in The Guardian and they're really excited about it, which, you know, I feel that. You know, I get I do get excited whenever, you know, my parents buy it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's, um, it is really, really cool. And it's also for someone who grew up when games were this kind of weird, nerdy thing to, it does feel legitimizing, I think, to see it covered well in, you know, good 
mainstream journalistic outlets. I think the Washington Post is doing a really good job as well. Um, and obviously Bloomberg hired Jason Schreier off Kotaku and also doing a super good job. And I do think that that um, is quite legitimizing and it's quite heartening, I think, to see games covered in that way in the mainstream media. And I like I like being a part of that. You know, it's cool. Um, the thing is, though, like I'm because I'm old now, I'm just not I'm not I don't know as much about about games as many younger writers. Like I fundamentally don't because I don't have the time to play them as much as you do when you're 22 years old. So um, I do, you know, really enjoy finding and surfacing writers who who know more than I do. You know, as an editor, like that's basically your job is to find people who know more than you do about a thing. You know, Um, like I write a lot Mm. myself, but there's so much stuff that I'm, you know, basically know far less than than many, you know, talented writers who I just then go and find to write about it themselves. I think that's one of the cooler parts of the job when you're when you're an editor rather than a, you know, rather than a Mm. writer is uh, finding people who know more than you. I know that uh, I, I did 200 words for you on Hitman 3 as a lockdown game, and that's probably the most impressed my dad's ever been in me. <laughs> <laughs> the start, the start, the start of something special. The the other thing is, so I learned. I, I'm not going. I can't. I can't really say this. I can't say numbers. I just learned how much money is spent at the Guardian on certain news investigations, and let's just say it is many, 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 many multiples more than I have to spend on video games. <laughs> right it would be so cool like i'd really love to you know really do like a full-time job of this and do like you know basically be running a mini game games outlet under the guardian banner that would be so so cool i do hope that happens someday but obviously they have you know uh, games is such a tiny fraction of what the guardian covers you know um and although i think that there's so much room for more and it'd be really cool if they'd invest in it i do understand why it's kind of not their biggest priority in the world right now. I hope it is, you know, I hope one day I do get to do more. It would be really cool. This is where the Guardian, Guardian starts doing SEO articles about where to find Zer. <laughs> uh, that did start happening. There were quite uh, a lot of UK tabloids that just suddenly started doing games coverage and it turned out that, that It just makes meant- me laugh so much to see certain names so, you know you search for a game and you end up with a newspaper that I, that has no like gamer identity in my head. And I think, what on earth is this doing on here? This is bizarre. It's supposed to be so weird for their yeah, you know, actual reader base. But yeah, there you go. Oh, wait, this is it. The actual readers never never get to the game stuff because it's all designed for search engines, right? So the only people who ever yes, read it are people yeah. who are searching for it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, this is... I get very upset about search engine optimization. <laughs> it's very <laughs> nice. I've been so privileged that... I mean, IGM was quite search engine-y, but Kotaku didn't give a shit. And um, obviously The Guardian doesn't doesn't really need it because it has 200 million readers. So I don't have to think about that at all. I don't have to be like, you know, I don't have to think about search keywords or like orient the coverage around what's going to get Googled the most or, you know, dicking around with rankings. Like all of that is a skill, right? All of that is an amazing skill. And like I've worked with people at previous jobs who are genuinely incredible at data and search engine stuff, but it's not writing, is it? It's not really journalism. It's a completely different set of skills like it's quite mm. nice not to have to worry about that that's nice reminds me of when endgamer had 200 million readers we were exactly the same place <laughs> as you. i loved endgamer though i genuinely did i read all of endgamer you and seven of us yeah all seven of us we all loved it <laughs> so i guess i guess before we get to e3 um it really is awesome um hearing you talk about your background is there any do you have any other kind of broader thoughts on how games media has changed in the uh, time you've been doing this? 
Oh, man. This always makes me feel like an actual fossil. I'm so glad I'm talking to you guys because sometimes I'm talking to people who are like, you know, been in the games industry for four years and I'm like, I feel like Methuselah t- talking about the <laughs> We're all fossils here, Keza. Yes. We're all fossils here. <laughs> um, but I think like the, ma- the major thing that's changed is that games journalism has gone from being a source of information about video games, which is still what it was when I started in 2006. It was you bought magazines to learn stuff about games. Like we were the conduit of information. Um, between publishers and the public basically that's what it used to be and now games games media has become a kind of very multifaceted thing where it's entertainment it's reporting it's criticism um it's loads and it's video it's written it's loads and loads of different stuff but what it's not is here's some basic information about a game because the publishers do that themselves now right they make trailers and do tweets and you know, have their own blogs where they kind of give out the information. So it leaves more room to be interesting. It leaves more room to find interesting stuff to talk about, I think, rather than just being like, here's the information about a video game. Um, And I think that that's kind of the biggest change that's happened alongside the fact that there's now no money. It's a shame there's no money now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. There was a time when there was money. There was actual money in like the late 90s and early 2000s when official PlayStation was selling 500,000 copies. There was money. Not for us. No money for us. Poor millennials. <laughs> oh, that's, um, yeah, very honest. Um, so, yeah, I guess then, Keza, we'll take a short break there and then we'll come back and get into the subject of E3 some more. But um, thank you so much for telling us about your background. It's um, it's really cool to hear about your very interesting journey, the globe-trotting <laughs> journey in uh, games media. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. In this section, we're going to talk a bit about our own E3 memories. So, Keza, we start with you. I'm really curious if you think that E3 still has a place these days. It's something that's discussed a lot. It's hotly kind of contested um, Mm. whether this big, expensive, Los Angeles-based event makes sense in a world of streamers and what have you. But um, what do you think the place of E3 is in 2021? I think that ultimately... Let's be honest, E3 doesn't really make sense. It's not necessary, but it's so fun. It's just such a lot of fun. And um, I think that everybody who actually works in the games industry appreciates that time where, like, physically we're all in the same place, you know. I think if you're a, uh, you know, I think for, for the purposes of giving out information about video games to people who might buy them, E3 is kind of pointless now. But in terms of like an industry event, I think it still definitely has its place. And uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I have a lot of fun at E3. I really enjoy it. Um, the only thing I enjoy as much as E3 is GDC, which I enjoy for very different reasons because it's much more like unguarded and, you know, a bit less uh, a bit less showy. But I find that apart from anything else, it's useful to have all of the kind of big game stuff happening at the same place at the same time. I think whether you're... Um, you know whether you're working in games or whether you're just playing them it's cool to just have that kind of big drop of news isn't it otherwise stuff just I found this happened last year like games get announced and I just didn't notice because I wasn't paying attention to Twitter that day or whatever whereas at E3 Mm. like you know when to pay attention don't you that 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 I mean that that was really it for me last year I think it made me see that that's actually what E3 has always been for me it's just sort of like it's like pay attention now this is where it all happens and it's it's just super convenient. 
it's such a convenient way of getting everything at once and this sort of fractured fragmented sort of show period we have now where you know everything's splintered into basically 10 miniature e3 that take place online i I found it very very hard to keep up with and i don't know i feel like it underserved a lot of people yeah i totally think that loads of people didn't get the info you know and uh, I mean, yeah. I didn't get the info and it's my job. So I imagine that loads and loads of people didn't get the info. And also the idea of like every single publisher trying to do like their own mini E3 by themselves. Like there's just not the clout. You, know, you need everybody together to get the attention. I also found that like it, E3 was kind of stretched out. So it was like, I think there were two weeks where I was checking Jeff Keighley's Twitter feed to see has he <laughs> tweeted that a new game's been announced today. Um and like the Jeff server of games, Jeff seems like a really nice guy, but like um, that was a kind of weird experience of being trapped indoors last year and just seeing has Jeff Keighley tweeted tweet out a new game <laughs> yeah, today. That's what um, the job then becomes, doesn't it? When you don't have shows, it's just like looking at Twitter, basically, and then writing about what you see on Twitter. Like that's not a fun job. No, it's very true. Um, I personally think like just the existence of it and having stuff like Keanu Reeves come out on stage just. Um, Making a kind of big song and dance about games culturally in this very, like um, like you say, corporate way, Keza, I think that's just kind of got value in itself and just kind of getting the world to pay attention to games. Um, that's it. Do you think like, that's the case? Totally. I mean, working, working at The Guardian, like E3 is one of the only times when I get asked by the news desk to do stuff, as opposed to me being like, hello, here's some things that are interesting. Um, and it's, it is, I think that the, the way that the, the, the world at large works, like if you're not paying attention to video games all the time, which most people aren't, then having a big focal point in June, which is a time when not much else is happening generally is, is, is really good. And it helps to get, it helps to put the attention on the games industry. If you enjoy the drama of the games industry and you enjoy like the kind of narrative about the companies, it's always felt like E3 is the... It's like the it's the one time of the year where you can like really change change the narrative, especially for the platform holders. Admittedly, like I think the the wind is out of out of the sails a little bit on in that regards because everyone's quite kind of sort of um, sort of friendly and sort of sharing, and it's all about we're all just a big gaming community. But back when there was a bit more venom, <laughs> aka the good old days where everyone was trying to like dick each other over. I like the idea that a killer E3 conference could basically restore confidence. And I'm not talking about like as a, as a financial thing, you know, to sort of economists or shareholders, but like as a fan, see like Nintendo come and like blow you away one year or, or someone really pull out the stops or someone shit the bed. It was, it was great fun for the kind of, I don't know, like the meta of kind of being a games fan. It's like, I don't watch wrestling, but I imagine it's like wrestling. <laughs> like the- the kind of right. meta narratives and the drama of it. Exactly. It's 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 sort of dumb, but I I did enjoy it. But it, like now it's I don't know. Everyone's less interested in that. You know, ever since Nintendo stopped doing the conferences and basically Microsoft fell into second place and then suddenly became this very kind of chill dude persona where it's all like, hey, we're happy. You know, we love being in second place. It's just all about. It's all about the gamers, and yeah. Phil is very warm and welcoming, and that's all fine, but I kind of like, I do kind of like the, the show-offs at E3. Well, I, I really loved that year when it was um, Xbox One versus PS4, and it was when the Xbox One was like a total mess, and it was like, you can 
buy games but then you don't own them and if you want to play them then you have to be online and then if you want to sell your game you can't if you want to give it to a friend you can't even if it's on a disc and like you know and it was all just a complete mess there was there was a good few weeks like around e3 that year that was one of the years i was working with ign and it was great fun because it was such drama um and there were a few weeks where the xbox one was just like a complete confusing mess and then the ps4 conference that the e3 conference that year was just sony being like just mic dropping on pretty much every aspect oh, yeah. of pretty much every aspect of the xbox one that was annoying everybody and they just had to say things like you pay for a game and then you own it and everyone would cheer you know yeah. <laughs> or like here's how you share exactly. games let it was dunkings come in yeah it was funny there was a bit where it was like here's how you share games on a ps4 and it was like shuhei yoshida handing a game to like his american counterpart it was like a three second video yeah as opposed to like microsoft's like, like crazy that. you can share rights I like with three energy. to five you could yeah three to five licensees you can share rights with yeah and um this was all pre phil spencer but that that year was really fun because it did feel like it felt like a wrestling match it was just like a lot of melodrama mm. and it was fun you know i do miss that kind of um the kind of silly side of e3 and then there was all the kind of stuff in around the ps3 era when the whole legendary PlayStation 3 reveal conference with that awful PlayStation Home demo, the 599 US dollars, um, the giant enemy crab, you know, all that stuff that was the, <laughs> the memes of the day, which which I really, really enjoyed. <laughs> you don't get that quite so much now, I don't think. Although you always do get some nonsense at Ubisoft's conference. That's always fun. That's true. You never know when like something that looks like it belongs in Cirque du Soleil will come out <laughs> to promote like a Rabbids game. Um, <laughs> oh, I missed that. Uh, that's the fun bit. Absolutely. No, I, I love that side of it too. I um, The first E3 I went to actually was that 2013 conference you mentioned, Keza, where it felt like Sony and Microsoft set out their store for the next generation. That it felt like the industry was sort of changing around you. I guess it's kind of superficial, but that's how I felt being at E3. Like... Mm. There's like a seismic shift, but you being on the ground covering it do feel that change. And that is, um, that's what I found exciting about covering it as a professional. Is that how you felt doing your first E3? Totally. It's just exciting being among it. I think my first E3 was, oh God, I can't remember. I really can't remember. It was a long time ago. I remember one of my first E3s was the one where they announced the Wii U. Um, mm. And that that's was... 2011. That's right. Yeah, that was probably my second one. Um, and I remember that being so weird like i was at that conference was that the last nintendo conference i think it was um and no, the, the, the last one was the the year after 2012 that's right because yeah. that was the one where the stage was like nintendo land yeah that that's when cute. you knew it was over <laughs> <laughs> but then i was i was quite uh quite enjoying nintendo's live streams just dropping in the middle of the day at e3 and everybody at e3 is like just sitting down on a pavement trying to watch it on their phone or like crowded right. into like a corner of the LACC just like trying try, try to find Wi-Fi so they can watch Nintendo's conference. It really amuses me. Uh, but yeah, when the Wii U was announced, that was, that was I think, maybe my second E3 um, and, or third. And it was so weird because like I was at that conference and I didn't know whether it was a new console or not. I was like, is is this a, a new controller for the... Wait, what is this? What's happening? You know, it was, it was such a strange conference. Um, and yeah, I remember thinking this ain't gonna go well you know and then of course it didn't go particularly well and just those moments when you are there for the announcement of something is really exciting i mean that doesn't really happen quite so much now because everybody has their own announcements for everything on their own terms mm. and e3 is kind of the supplement but uh yeah the few times i've been at e3 where something has been actually announced has been really cool because you think oh there's a mo- a mo- it's like a moment of change isn't it I don't know if if you guys sort of experienced this, but my 
like lasting memories of E3 is the you know, you tend to arrive a few days early, especially as there's all these conferences before the show actually opens. And in those couple of days, like, everyone goes into, like, rumour overdrive about <laughs> what's going to happen. And you get the impression that some people are in the know because there's those sort of weird pre-E3 demo weeks, whatever they're called. Judges Week. Is it Judges Week? Yeah, where you get to go to E3 yeah. and just do E3 a week early. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I used to be so jealous of that. It used to it spoil it a little bit because I used to think, well, all this stuff is a bit tainted because people have already seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and people who specifically people who weren't me, um, but like I remember the being there before the the Wii U announcement, and there'd been so many rumours about what the next Nintendo console was, and it's it just sort of went, you know, it was already uh, like the you know described as the craziest thing ever, and then. In in twenty in those like twenty four hours before a conference, like everyone had a wild take, you know, had some people seen it somehow but early, and that happened every year. It was quite sort of I don't know, it was super exciting, and then everyone would be sort of inevitably a bit disappointed when the conference happened. Oh yeah, because there's always like that rumor that you want to believe, but that is never true. One thing I really miss is the ritual of arriving at in Los Angeles and then like going and getting your press pass on like the Saturday or whatever. Um, like walking through the Los Angeles Convention Center when it's empty. So, for mm. people listening at home, there's um, there are two like massive halls in the LA Convention Center. Then there's like a big kind of long corridor that separates them. That's got like a hidden hall buried in it, which is where you tend to find like I don't know European RPGs and like mice and stuff like that, um, <laughs> and like a takoyaki just... stand for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there'll be, like, one confusing stand outside the halls that's just, like, a car with, like, I don't know, a woman stood next to it, like, giving out leaflets. <laughs> and it'll be about something really baffling. Um, but, yeah, I, I just kind of miss the, the ritual of doing it, of being there. Like, it's a real specific vibe to to those, um, to those that show that's, like, it doesn't feel like you're going to an EGX or a PAX. It feels like something else. It's the fact that when you're all on the plane and everyone on the plane is either a journalist or a PR, it just, it feels like everyone in your profession is going on holiday together it's got a, it's really strange energy in the airport and the plane it is that the plane energy is really odd especially when everybody starts pulling out the ds's or the switches and getting <laughs> unnecessarily competitive it's a long plane ride it's a very long plane ride everyone's in a weird space by the end of that plane ride i remember um on one e3 on the way there uh, everybody in there was like three rows of people that all knew each other and everybody got like absurdly competitive on like the the uh in-seat entertainment version of tetris <laughs> and so there was just this 12 hour long war going on between about nine or ten different people all trying to get the high score in the stupid tetris because it had you know it had a high score that obviously was um across, like you could see who the who, the, who the, the person on the plane with the highest score in tetris was um, oh, that's amazing. That was I, 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 the the last time I went to E3 when we were leaving the airport. Um, I realised that the person I was I thought I was the last person getting on the plane, but then someone sneaked on behind me, and it was Chris Pratt. Um, <laughs> and I said to someone else like, "Oh, so uh, it's Chris Pratt," <laughs> and thought, you know, he's going to go up to first class. And then, like, obviously, that rumour did the rounds. And someone had the guts to ask, like, a hostess, can I go and see Chris Pratt? And they let him! I was what? like, why didn't I ask? They I let him? Saw him. I would... Oh, I can't believe that. I would never think to even ask. Now I will, next time. 
Yeah. I'm like, oh, I heard there's a Chris Pratt on this plane. Can I go and see it, please? <laughs> I'll do it next time I fly to Edinburgh. Why not? I'll just do it on every plane I ever get on from now on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is before he um, started following right-wing accounts on Instagram. Oh, yeah, this, so, um... this is oh, when no. he was nice. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, have I missed Chris Pratt being cancelled? Gutted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... It, so obviously, Keza, that first time you attended, you were sleeping on someone's floor. You were very young, so yes. you've seen E three change a lot over the years. What are the the fundamental changes you've seen um, go down with the show, aside from the removal of booth babes? Um, that was that was a good thing, I have to say. Uh, I think that it became a bit more fragmented, in that every single publisher wanted its own special conference. It didn't used to be that way. You used to get Sony would do theirs, PlayStation would do theirs. And then, then Microsoft came along and would do theirs. But you didn't get this weird thing where you had like two straight days of constant conferences, um, which is mm. exhausting, <laughs> like really tiring. And everybody's kind of competing for the same kind of limited oxygen, you know. Um, and also, obviously, the, the biggest change that's happened is that it's all live streamed now. And so you're in this strange position when you're writing about E3 that you're like, is there any point in me playing a demo that they're then going to just put out a 30 minute video of on YouTube? Um, you know, like, do I need to be playing that and then rushing to write that up in the next half hour so that we're the first with it? Like, is is that even a thing anymore now? And, um, you mm. know, pretty much every game that's at E3 now, you will get its own half hour to hour long presentation on uploaded to YouTube within seconds of E3 opening. And, uh, so you start to, I mean, certainly when you're working E3 now, you start to just look for different stuff. Like instead of just play game, write up game, which was like my E3 experience for the vast majority of the times I've been is like play game, write up game, talk to dev, write up that. And you're just in this constant kind of cycle of quite exciting, you know, deadlines. Um, Whereas now I'm sort of looking for a story of the show. I'm looking for what's the thing that's like the narrative Mm. of this E3. Do you remember that E3 where just everybody had a bow? (laughs) It was the one that was like, it was... (laughs) It was the like all the big games. Oh, every, everyone in a game had a bow. <laughs> no, not every not, attendee. Not the attendee. No, everyone in the game. Just everyone in the game said that. And there was there was the E three where it was like the reckoning of no female characters, the Assassin's Creed Unity year. Right. Um. And then there was like there's, yeah. there's, there's, there are these like little kind of these themes that emerge from E three. And like when I was working Kata- working yeah. at Kotaku, that's kind of what I was wanting from E three was these like what's the what's the kind of the temperature of the games industry you can take from all the stuff that's happening rather than focusing on all the individual games and so on. You kind of look for the themes and the kind of what's going on. Like that's, that's how I like to cover E3 now. Um, Also because I can't physically as one person (laughs) cover, cover the every individual thing that's actually happening at E3. So it's kind of by necessity. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Cause I remember the first time I went to E3, I was on End Gamer at the time. And one of the conditions of sort of being able to go was that while we were out there, we'd write stories for uh, official Nintendo online. Mm-hmm. And I'd never worked for a site. Like, I'd never been expected to do that kind of turnaround before. Like, I'm not a very fast writer. I'm not really built for, like, online. Because, I, you know, it's muscle memory and a skill you develop. And I remember being there and playing demos and then trying to, like, churn out these little 600-word previews. I remember being incredibly stressed about this, and it coincided with um, Peter Molyneux had left Lionhead, and he was kind of going through that slightly um, sort of divorced dad phase that he had, where <laughs> he was that. just sort of around, and uh, he was he was hired, I don't know if you remember this, he was hired as a special correspondent for like 
game trailers or something or, oh my or one God. of the video sites and he was an E3 correspondent and he was just there doing the rounds but obviously wherever Peter Molyneux is there's quite a lot of buzz and excitement because you know he's kind of famous he's kind of a celebrity developer and him being in the press room and motherfuckers trying to talk to him while I was trying to write because he sat on this table while I was trying to write his preview <laughs> he's kept talking to people and he felt like saying you, Pete, you've got to get the fuck out of the press room. Like you were, you were completely breaking the sanctity of this room. Um, I didn't say that. I just, I think I took a picture of this it. This is a room for total silence, but, silence, and know. stressing about your horrible deadline that you can't possibly meet. That's what this room is for, Peter. Yeah, like in there, just chomping away yeah. on the free croissants or whatever. Oh, oh my god, the rush! Like, honestly, that press room. There's like they they bring out sandwiches at kind of twelve thirty on the dot. And the the rush, the the hungry hordes who descend upon those oh. free sandwiches within seconds, it's it's rather nauseating. I, I swear, half the people in the press room are in the press room all day. They don't actually go onto the show floor. No, they just watch the live streams. Like, Why are you here? Like, yeah. what have you actually done today? There, there are genuinely people who cover E3 by going to LA and then sitting and watching live streams in their hotel rooms and covering that. Like, I had that E3 one, it's one mad. year. Yeah, I had, it, I had it one year because I... Um, Long story short, I had to live blog um, the conferences, which I love, by the way. That's like my ultimate number one favorite thing to do is live blogging the E3 conferences because it's so fast and so fun. And you get into a kind of manic state where you end up, I certainly end up writing some quite weird stuff that because I'm so, because right. I'm just in like a stream of consciousness mode. I end up writing quite weird stuff and people people seem to enjoy it. Um, so I was live blogging the conferences, but like I didn't have reliable internet. I didn't. I hadn't. I hadn't been. Um, I hadn't had the foresight to like deal with a four G dongle or any of that bollocks. So I didn't have reliable internet. So I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to live blog these conferences is if I watch them in my hotel room instead of going to them. Um, so I did. I literally, like, I flew to LA and then I sat in my hotel room for two days watching conferences and live blogging them. And I was like, this is modern journalism in a nutshell, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the other benefit of that is that in ten years' time, you don't develop tinnitus. From the freaking sound systems they have at those conferences. So, so loud. So know. loud. Who's it's laughing like, now? It's like motorsports, isn't it? It's just like, it's so, so loud. Oh, oh do you remember that? God. Do you remember? What, what uh, year was it? Was it? The, it was PS... Oh. It was a PS4 year. And instead of doing a conference, Sony basically hired a film set and made lots of different individual sets for all the different games they had coming out that year. It was like oh, Dreams and Spider-Man yeah. and Ghost of Tsushima. And it was like a kind of immersive theatre experience. And Last of Us too, And it was like an immersive theatre experience. And I'm like, this is not an E3 conference. I'm, I'm, in- I, this is, I'm enjoying myself, I guess. But like, I, this isn't an E3. I can't cover this. Like, what is there to cover? I'm just walking through a bunch of themed rooms. And then, you know, having a mini burger at the end. <laughs> that was a very strange year. <laughs> Yeah, that had. I think that was the year that featured like a slightly problematic Ghost of Tsushima music man, um, if I recall. I do, um, I do recall that. that, So he didn't do E3 anymore. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I mean, so so then it was just down to Ubisoft to do the live theatre experiences with Cirque du Soleil acting out Ghost Recon Breaklands or whatever it's called. Jesus, I've not been to E3 for for such a long. It feels like ages. I think the last one I went to was twenty eighteen. 17 18 must have been 18 and it it feels like now nintendo doesn't bother and sony doesn't bother i'm just not sure what it's going to be like next time 
Yeah, mm. it's a real. It's kind of a shame. Yeah, like Sony were one of the few publishers that could really be relied upon to put out a good show every time. Apart from the weird immersive theatre, I mean that was a good show, but it just wasn't very you know coverable. Um, but they could always be relied to do something interesting and fun and like something big at E3. And like, frankly, without that, E3 is just Gamescom, but in America, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, more than ever with the last E3, I, I felt like I was seeing all of the big stuff. Like you say, I, I, I remember we saw a behind-the-scenes demo of Outer Worlds, and then before when I had the chance to write that up, as I was writing it up, Jeff Keighley had like the footage that we saw behind closed doors, like on his show live stream. And I thought, why am I writing this up? Like, yeah, it like you say the the place of it has just changed. It doesn't feel like the the world we're in now really it quite fits with what it is. You know, I mean, the, mm. obviously it's different for from for like if I'm writing for the Guardians audience, like people aren't going to be sitting watching three days worth of live streams. But if you're working for IGN. People are. Like, your readers are going to be sitting there watching three days, ideally your live stream. They're going to be watching three days of live streams. for. They're going to book time off work, you know, to watch E3. I um, agree with you about Sony as well. It feels like Sony has become so successful that they feel like they don't need E3, and they're probably right. But without them, it does feel like there's a big missing piece. Um, I'm not it sure does. what E3, the ESA can really do about that, because it doesn't seem like they're going to change their minds on it either. But... Um, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens next year. The, the, the ESA, the uh, the organisation that runs E3, is uh, I have many issues <laughs> with that organisation, and so does the games industry. You know, at large, like E3 is incredibly mm. expensive for publishers, like incredibly expensive. The amount of money that the millions that are spent on on E3, like it's 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 basically like you know, it's a bit of a racket, really. And a lot of publishers and a lot of people have pretty pretty negative feelings towards the ESA for the way they've run things, and also the fact that they just leaked thousands of journalist details the other year that was fun so like i do wonder whether e3 could, will be saved because there's just not that much goodwill towards the, the organization that runs it you know it was funny because ign always used to hire out a studio that was quite near the lacc for our um for our live stream studio and uh what are all of the studios in la used for guys they're all used for porn so we would arrive at the studio oh. and there would be like weird sofas in the corner and lots of like you know stills or action shots from the previous things that had been filmed there all over the walls that we all had to just sort of <laughs> try and ignore while we were setting up our our studio to live stream the video game show it was hilarious oh amazing <laughs> what who makes the room smell worse <laughs> <laughs> that's something to ponder oh. anyway yeah uh, things I wish I hadn't heard, but um, yeah, good stuff. Um, so yeah, I suppose then, uh, Matthew, we'll start with you on this, but like, what are your kind of happy or exciting memories of attending E3? The, f- the first year I went, I had a pretty easy ride because I was there with the Nintendo magazine, and if you go and do Nintendo at E3, that basically means the Nintendo stand and not a lot else, especially at this point. This was like the tail end of the Wii. It was the year they announced the Wii U. Um so I spent most of the show on the stand just, like, mining the Skyward Sword demo, um, which I've talked about before, I think, on the podcast. They had this timed demo, oh, and yeah. it, you know, so it timed out after a while, and I just kept replaying it so I'd get a little bit further every time until I could play the whole demo. And, you know, again, we've talked about this on the podcast, you know, our E3 coverage 
up until that point had always been based on covering the show from afar but I felt like we did a really good job of like digging deep and trying to bring together all the information so actually having the opportunity to be there and going like right I'm going to get everything I need to write like the most amazing feature next month that was really satisfying um slightly counterbalanced by I remember that was the E3 where they had Kid Icarus as well uprising on the 3DS which I was really excited for but I had one of the worst ever um, moments of my career which was going to play that on the, they, it was just like a public stand and the 3DS's had headphones attached to them and uh, like obviously you don't really think about other people using those headphones before you and when I put the headphones on my head they were so wet from sweat oh. from the last guy who wore them that like literal his sweat ran down my face like squeezed oh. from it like a sponge <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I remember thinking like ah, that's so grim. <laughs> so that's one of my three memories. Oh, <laughs> that's so grim. Sorry about that mental image. Um, and then actually, all my three DS memories at E three were disastrous because the year after that was the infamous um, playing Luigi's Mansion and Yuji Naka getting really cross because he was standing behind me in the queue. He kept harumphing and going. Huh, looking at his watch and things i was like all right man sonic hedgehog was a long time ago chill, chill <laughs> you're not more important than me now eugene Acker. <laughs> matthew what's your theory on that that he um has got to go fast all the time because he created yeah. Sonic hedgehog. <laughs> yeah sonic don't cue for no one <laughs> um how about you, Kezo? What what were the kind of like um, sort of exciting or mind blowing experiences you had at E three or like memorable demos and things like that? Uh, Watchdogs. You remember that year that Watchdogs just appeared out of nowhere? Oh yeah, it was like mm. right at the end of the Ubisoft conference, and it looked really, really cool and interesting. And uh, <laughs> I was hosting IGN's kind of live show, and me and the other guy was hosting. We we weren't expecting it at all. And so when when it cut from the trailer, it was just me and this other guy with our mouths literally like hanging open. <laughs> like, what was that? Uh, and that was it. Was really cool because it was just a, an interesting surprise. And then also we had to completely mm. we had you know you always kind of know what's going to happen at an E three conference really. And then we had to completely riff on on that for like ten minutes on the on the live show, which was quite a fun experience. And then there was a time mm. when. Um, I was. It was the year that VR was a thing, and uh, I was playing Elijah Wood's weird horror game. I can't remember the name of. I was, it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was the name of that game? I can't remember. Um, and I was playing that, and I, I'm a huge wuss, right? I can't really deal with horror anything anyway, especially not in VR. So I was sitting there like squawking with terror at this um, silly horror game. Um, and I could hear, you know, through the headphones, I've heard like quite a lot of people laughing. And I took off the mm. I took off the VR headset and turned around, and it was Hideo Kojima and his entire entourage and film crew <laughs> <laughs> laughing at me playing Elijah Wood's horror game. That was fun. <laughs> that was a good moment. And there was also a time when I was <laughs> I was at the bar, um, and um, do you guys remember Jay Allard? Yeah. Oh yeah. Jay yeah, Allard Xbox was guy. like, yeah, he was like the Xbox kind of f- cozy, fluffy geek dude who who was involved with the original Xbox, and then Microsoft kind of made him over into this like leather jacket wearing, one earring dude who said stuff like, "Yeah, we took the Xbox and we like goosed it and we tricked it and we made it convex." Um, 
and he <laughs> he always struck me as quite an interesting character but i i ran into him at a bar at e3 and literally he was just sitting up but this was years after the you know years after the 360 and i just went up to him at the bar and i was like i'm sorry hello jay allard are you jay allard and he was jay allard and he had so many excellent stories like really really good stories. he didn't give a shit he was just telling me all sorts of like brilliant stories about his days with xbox and i was just sitting there like absorbing <laughs> absorbing this vibe it was very very fun that was a really good really good encounter at e3 oh. and uh and then there was a less good encounter when i was supposed to interview so i'm cursed when it comes to interviewing shigeru miyamoto like literally cursed i've never i never got the opportunity for years and then every time i did get the opportunity something would happen like to prevent me from doing it like the first time i was just in the wrong country i was in i was in berlin and uh i got a call from i can't remember what magazine it was saying shigeru miyamoto's in town can you interview him tomorrow and i was like no like i couldn't i couldn't there was no way i could get back and then the second time um i broke my arm (laughs) And I couldn't, and I was in hospital and someone else had to do the interview. And then the third time he was in Paris and I was so, so ill that I was flown to Paris for this interview, but I could not leave my hotel room because I had like horrendous flu. And then one time at E3, I was um, scheduled to interview him and I got there early and I was just hanging around outside. This was like the day before E3 started. And I was like hanging around at Nintendo's booth on the kind of half built E3 show floor. And a security guard came up to me and said, what are you doing? I was like, I'm I'm waiting for an interview, I'm press. And he was like, where's your press ID? And I was like, here? He's like, it's not got the right colour of strip. You need to come with me. And I was like, no, 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 no. Seriously, I can't can't come with you. I'm really sorry. I have to wait. It was a very important interview. And this guy started getting like really RG. And these guys are armed. Do you know what I mean? Like it's America. Um, (laughs) And it got to the point where I was just like basically hands up, like, please, please don't. Okay, okay, fine. I'll come with you. I'll come with you. And so I was like marched off the show floor quite forcibly by this E3 security guard. And then like half of Nintendo's PR came running out of this half built stand going, no, no. But like I got marched. They have a little prison. Do you know they have a little prison in the LACC? They have a little prison. I got marched there and um, and put there (laughs) while they tried to establish why I was on the half built show floor without the right color of wristband. Um, and anyway, by the time we shook it all out, I only had like six minutes left with Miyamoto. <laughs> so, I, uh. and I'd just been like through this quite quite alarming experience of being marched at gunpoint, essentially off the E3 show floor. So I just kind of arrived and <laughs> blurted about two questions, and then that was that. It was really gutting. That was definitely a very disappointing <laughs> E3 experience. <laughs> wow wow but you got to see the inside of uh, e3 prison what was that like did they still have the lunches at twelve thirty? <laughs> literally been to e3 prison i don't know how many journalists have they should have put peter molyneux in e3 prison <laughs> and the same probably that's where you know I, I would mention names it's probably where you're, you're put if you're found with drugs i'm guessing you get put in e3 prison i mean i'd understand if that was your only way to get through it but um yeah for sure <laughs> So I guess like um I was going to want to ask about like your weird or sort of bad memories of E3. Um this is a personal one, but when they let the public in in 2017, I found that so unbearable in terms of the volume of people. It's not that I think that they don't be- they don't deserve to be there. It's nothing to do with that. It's just that there's no separation like there is with Gamescom and it just you were swarmed with people. Mm. I guess more on the negative side then um Kez, I'll start with you. Like what are the your sort of like weird or uh, sort of like bad memories of E3 aside from being put in prison? I was going to say more negative than E3 prison. Um I think that <laughs> there was a time when I I want to say it was Duke Nukem Forever. 
and I was in a demo for that and it was at a time when I just I was very hungover and quite tired and this demo was just such sexist bullshit you know it was really 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 sexist bullshit and I know it's Duke Nukem and I know that's kind of the deal but that day I was just like I can't be arsed with this and so I like got up I was just like fuck this I'm leaving and I like got up and like stormed out of this demo um not making a scene I just like I just couldn't be bothered with it um and I left and it became this like massive deal for the PR and I felt so bad like I, I just couldn't be bothered I just wanted to leave so I did and then this poor PR person basically got a hard time because I left and you know had to chase me up and try and sort of you know get out of me why I left this demo and stuff and I was just like oh for god's sake you know it's just it was really just one of those situations where I wished I'd just sat down and stayed still for 10 more minutes instead of having enough of Jake Nukem forever <laughs> it was because do you know why it was it's because there was a bit where he went the demo guy went into the like the shower room and there was like some shampoo in the shower room that was just bitch and go and I'm like that's not even a joke that's just that's not even it's, it's just the word bitch it's like it's not a joke <laughs> and that was the final straw for me about that game it's not even uh, a pun it's, just it's not, not a pun <laughs> that, was, oh, it's, that was my worst it's, D3 demo. somehow subs up that game so well <laughs> i remember playing um the Resident Evil 7 VR demo, and that was the year. Like Resident Evil 7 was a big surprise, and I think they released the... There was like a demo you could play at home, and it was the the one where the two guys with the video camera are kind of leading you through the house, and then you go down into a basement, and it all gets a bit Blair Witch. Um, but I remember going to the Capcom stand to play it, and you could play it just on a TV, or that you could play it on VR, and as that wasn't available at home, I thought, oh, i better play it on VR. And... It was. I think it was the last thing I saw at E3 that year, and I was so frazzled at that point that, like, I mean, I would have been scared of anything. And I remember just absolutely shitting myself in that demo, <laughs> and the whole time hearing Laura, the Capcom PR, just cackling away in the background. Um, just night, just a like nightmare sort of, you know, <laughs> not not demonic laughing, uh, but. Just the perfect storm of like, oh no, I'm just not, I just not prepared for this. That year, um, the Resident Evil just traumatic. The Resident Evil Seven VR year was the year that I was very heavily pregnant, and I skipped E3 that year, <laughs> and I went to Gamescom instead at like seven months pregnant, and I walked into the like the demo, and everybody in the room just looked at me and then looked at my stomach and then went, "Don't play this, please don't play this." <laughs> <laughs> so I had I think they just didn't want to, they did, they didn't want to terrify the pregnant lady into a spontaneous gamescom birth. Um so I had to watch somebody else play it. That's that was my demo experience of Resident Evil 7 in VR. It's that one of the one of the dudes just played it for me and I had to sit and make notes. <laughs> he seemed scared. <laughs> yeah, it seems terrifying. I'm not sure. I can't really see what's going on. Most of my kind of like weird or sort of negative E3 memories are to do with like accommodation. So the worst, <laughs> the worst year I could think of for accommodation for me was what we kind of we dubbed it Murder House. Um, we arrived on day one and heard a gunshot in the neighbourhood where we were as we kind of like opened the door. But when I think about E three, I can only think about the variable accommodation. Like uh, hotels that have sort of um, rats in them and stuff like that. It all depends on how early or sort of late you end up like booking it. 
I suppose then, like, um, do you have any kind of weird experiences like that where you're in accommodation where you're like, it's strange that people live here, or I feel like I should be reading about this in a James Elroy novel. What about you, Keza? Yeah, so that's mostly happened to me in San Francisco, to be honest, for GDC, where I've stayed in hotels where I've been slightly fearful for my personal safety, Um, or just really weird Airbnbs. You're like, who lives here? Who owns this? What is this place? Um, Nothing compares to the year that we were very, very late booking for Tokyo Game Show. Um, and so Tokyo Game Show is actually an hour outside of Tokyo. Uh, so you either pay money to stay in Tokyo, like in actual Tokyo in Shibuya or something, and then you do an hour's commute to and from the show, or you go for one of the corporate hotels that's near the show, and then you have to commute into actual Tokyo to do anything fun. Um, IGN booked us so late that neither of those options were available. So we got given a hotel that was halfway between the two at Tokyo Disneyland. So we were literally staying <laughs> wow. in the Tokyo Disney hotel at tokyo disneyland which was neither useful for the conference nor useful for actual tokyo but was at disneyland so that was quite good (laughs) that was about my fourth it was about my fourth tokyo game show and i'd I'd lived in japan by then so i was like i can do without going into shibuya for the night i'm just gonna go i'm just gonna go to tokyo disneyland every night the whole time i'm here and then e3 was very variable i got i got everything from like the the standard or the mondrian which the kind of fancy la hotels i got those a few years um and then i also got like rat infested airbnb situation or one year i got um put in an accommodation with like five guys and i was like why do i have to share a bed like a room with three other dudes there was like four beds in this one room i'm like this is unacceptable and then i got rescued by a friend of mine who (laughs) worked for a big game publisher and they'd like block booked half the rooms at one of the nice hotels downtown and she's just like just have one of those just have one they're probably half empty um so i got rescued i got rescued from the uh the dormitory um (laughs) by a kind friend who worked for a big game publisher that was that was the, that that would have been a really bad year otherwise i think i have very distinct memories of whenever we get our got our hotel for e3 we'd all be on to trip advisor to see like what a nightmare was in store for us <laughs> and one year the the kind of phrase that i recall was the the review was headed rusty bathroom <laughs> which was super sinister big silent hill energy um <laughs> And there was another year we stayed in a hotel, which I'm pretty sure, like, a year later, they discovered a woman in the water tank on the roof. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, oh my God. I think we'd all been showering in some kind of, like, murder juice. <laughs> I've definitely been in a hotel that was essentially a halfway house. Definitely. In San Francisco. On that true crime documentary style <laughs> note, then, um, I guess we'll wrap up. Um, thank you so much for uh, chatting to us, Keza, about E3. Do you have any closing thoughts on E3 before we, um, before we say goodbye? I hope it comes back. I am looking forward to gathering once again in LA while being very, very jet lagged and a bit fed up and uh, drinking overpriced cocktails. How about you, Matthew? Yeah, but, but I don't know if I ever will do E3 again, really. I'm a bit out of the loop, but, um, you know, I'll, I look forward to it. I enjoy watching it. Cool. Let's hope the um, COVID variants are defeated so we can all go and play, I don't know, what, a Banjo-Kazooie reboot in um, 2023. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us, Keza. So people can follow you on uh, at Keza McDonald on Twitter. Um, you did a podcast recently too, right, with um, with Eddie Gibson? I did. Um, it's called Extra Life, and we interview comedians and TV people about their lives in video games. And there's hopefully going to be a second series soon as well, which would be great because I love doing that. We're uh, that's why we're uh, punching above our weight getting you on here. Really, you know, like the um, the cream of the crop of British light entertainment at this point. So, um, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Kez. Is there anything else you kind of wanted to draw people's attention to? I'm sure people um, know uh, know your work very well, but is there anything else that you kind of wanted to spotlight? You can, you, yeah, I mean, you can read you can read game stuff at The Guardian. I'm in charge of all that. Have a look at it. Some of it's quite good. I'm quite pleased. We're even going to have more Matthew Castle in the future. So look forward to that. Oh, nice. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, My dad yeah. will be proud. BA. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Well, you can follow me at Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. Matthew, where can people follow you? Um, Mr. Basil underscore pesto. Cool. And you can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod on Twitter. You can also email us your questions at backpagegames at gmail.com. And uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye bye.